0: Welcome to Talking History, a series of talks from Farnham U3A History Group. In this talk, Peter Duffy tells us about the sick man of Europe and the Berlin Conference of 1878, part A. Now, many years ago, I used to play a board game called Diplomacy. Did anybody else play that in this matter of interest? Well, you understand now what I'm going to say next. It's a game where the players represented the great powers of Europe. Austria, Britain, France, Germany, Italy, Russia, and Turkey, as they were in the late 19th century. The game was played by the representatives of each of the great powers secretly negotiating alliances, betrayals, attacks, strategic moves, in order to maximize territorial gains at the expense of their competitors. It illustrated perfectly, in a very simple way, the interaction of the great powers as such, but also the importance of the skills and personalities of the individuals who represented the powers in their relationships with others. The Berlin Conference of 1878 is a perfect real-life example of the diplomatic world that this game modeled. So what we will be looking at today, therefore, is a classic case of diplomatic history. Now, when I began studying history for my first degree, now nearly 60 years ago, and I find that very depressing, (laughs) this is what true history was all about. It was the great German historian, Leopold von Ranke who defined how history, writing, and study was to be practiced. The focus was to be on primary sources, in his day the archives and records of the bureaucracy, to produce a narrative of international politics. So today there'll be none of the variety of histories that have developed since then. There'll be no art history, no women's history, no Marxist history, no social history, no economic history, no history of the long durée and the annals school. Just basic diplomatic history, History as it truly was, e as Eichendorff gave and I hope I've got my, pronunciation, my German pronunciation right there. That's what, how von Ranke put it. As it tr- history as it truly was. So the plan will be to focus on a series of inter- historical facts from a very tightly defined field, and to display these over our very limited time. Unlike von Ranke, and because of our time limitation, I will mainly be using secondary sources and not primary resources. I will try to detail the key events before and after the Congress, the major players, and the motivations for their actions and approaches. And in each case, trying to look at the political situations in their home countries which very much governed their international relations. I'm going to approach this because we need to understand the importance and its position of the Congress as. a Marker and a game changer in the years before the First World War. The outstanding eventual result of the conference was that it created what was to be the lineup of the powers in the war. Very very strange when you look at why why was autocratic Russia tied up allied to Republican France? Why was Germany tied irrevocably to Austria? And why to Turkey? Why was England available for the right offer which eventually occurred? At the conference, the great powers also neglected the tinderbox that was to lead to the conflict, the First World War. They neglected the minor Balkan states and their ambitions. So let's begin by setting the scene, and there's no better place to start, than with Ottoman Turkey, a supposed 19th century sick man. In the 15th century, the Ottomans had conquered the remnants of the Roman Empire with the siege and capture of the capital of Constantinople, renamed Istanbul. Already ruling North Africa, Egypt and much of the Arabian, and the Middle East and Anatolia, they'd gone on to take over the Balkans, Greece and Cyprus, before being stopped at Malta and the gates of Vienna. But since that high point in the 17th century, they had gradually lost ground, metaphorically and literally against their competitors, especially to the Habsburg and Romanov dynasties on their western and northern frontiers, and to powers such as Britain and France in the Eastern Mediterranean and North African littoral, and to the growing strength of nationalism in countries such as Greece and Serbia. On top of this, they'd lost to Pan-Slavism, supported on and off by elements of the Russian public and government. Much of the population of the Ottoman state being Muslim, but in the European section being intermingled with significant numbers of Orthodox and Roman Catholic practitioners, each group being vociferous in promoting its own practice, and there was a perpetually fermenting brew facing the Ottoman government, <coughs> and one where discord and revolt could be started either from internal causes or by an outside intervention. Now, the situation became critical in the mid-19th century. In 1853, the Russian Tsar Nicholas, in conversation with the British ambassador, Sir Edward Seymour, said, Turkey seems to be falling to pieces. The fall will be a very great misfortune. It is very important that England and Russia should come to a perfectly good understanding and that neither should take any decisive steps of which the other is not apprised. We have a sick man on our hands, a man gravely ill. It will be a great misfortune if one of these days he slips through our hands, especially before necessary arrangements are made. However, the Tsar seeking to initiate the collapse of Turkey without the agreement of the other great powers and making the defense of the orthodoxy in the holy sites of Jerusalem the pretext, sought to intervene directly in the internal affairs of Turkey. Britain, which had a long-standing commitment to defend Turkey against Russian intervention, and France, impelled by its Catholic traditions to defend its role as the guardian of the holy sites, came to Turkey's support in what we now call the Crimean War. The result was the defeat for Russia recorded in the Treaty of Paris in 1856. This marked the high point of France as the leading power in Europe. Particularly bitter for Russia, apart from the appalling military defeat, was the loss of Bessarabia and the stipulation that they could not maintain any military naval force in the Black Sea. Now the Russian policy towards the Eastern question after this was one driven by the Tsar Alexander II. He'd come to power after the death of his father Nicholas I in the closing years of the Crimean War. The result of that war had been humiliation for Russia, a Russia with enormous losses in manpower and material virtually bankrupt, with all its social and administrative weaknesses hideously revealed, to the extent that the Romanov dynasty itself was threatened. Alexander was determined to put matters right and to reverse the results of the Crimean War. In 1861, he freed the serfs. He restructured local government, founded schools, ended the Caucasian wars that had brought huge new tracts of land to Russia, but at vast expense. He sold Alaska to the US and supported the growth of a railway system for commercial and military purposes. Most importantly, he totally reorganized the Russian military system, introducing limited conscription, officer training, and the military districts to aid mobilization. Now, after France's defeat in 1871, Alexander moved further away from France and joined the League of the Three Emperors, the Drei Kaiser Wood, with the rulers of Germany and Austro-Hungary. All along, his aim was to block those powers that had in the past been responsible for Russia's defeat. Both France after 1871 and Austro-Hungary after 1866 had been neutered as great powers by Germany, Russia's strongest ally. Prior to the 1875 confrontation, Austria-Hungary was brought to acquiesce in Russia's intentions toward Turkey by being promised secretly a free hand in Bosnia-Herzegovina in the case of the Russia-Turkish conflict. Now, In 1875, conditions from the Russian point of view fell perfectly into place for what we can call the Crimean War Round Two. Serbia, supported by Russia and with a Russian general at the head of her army and with Russian volunteers, declared war on Turkey. At the same time, Bulgarian elements, again with Russian encouragement, rose in revolt against Turkish rule. The Sultan, desperately short of money, defaulted on Turkey's debt, which was largely due to France and Britain to pay for Turkey's participation in the Crimean War. He thus alienated those who should have been his chief supporters. Unable to pay his regular armies for the purpose, he used irregulars to put down the Bulgarian revolt and their violence further alienated public opinion and his natural ally, Britain. Now, in a famous broadscribe, the leading opposition politician William Gladstone powerfully wrote in his pamphlet, The Bulgarian Horrors and the Question of the East, and I quote, and I want you to follow this very carefully because I've read it about five times, and I get <coughs> lost in it every time, it's a difficult to glance, from, you know, 50 words where one would do. Let the Turks now carry away their abuses in the only possible way, namely by carrying off themselves. Their zaptiers, their Mudias, their Binbashis, their Yuzbachis, their kamikans, and their Pashas, one and all, bag and baggage, shall I hope, clear out from the province they have desolated and profaned. This thorough riddance, this most blessed delivery, is the only way, the only reparation we can make to the memory of those heaps on heaps of dead, to the violated purity like a matron, maiden, and child. There's not a criminal in a European jail, there's not a cannibal in the South Sea Islands, whose indignation would not arise and overboil at the recital of what has been done if it is allowable that the executive power of Turkey should renew in this, great, in this great crisis, by permission or authority from Europe, the charter of its existence in Bulgaria, then there is not on record since the beginning a political society, a protest that man has lodged against a tolerable misgovernment, or a stroke that he has dealt at some loss of the territory that ought not to be henceforth branded as a crime. Uh, now, any possibility that Britain, Turkey's main ally, would spring to its defense against Russia, thoroughly stymied. Now, at this critical point for, for Turkey, the Sultan died, and his successor was declared to be mad and was deposed, and Abdul Karim, the young and completely inexperienced, became Sultan in what was known as the year of the three Sultans. What is extraordinary is how his position was strengthened by the crisis. Given that from the very beginning, he was given an appalling hand, he played it very skillfully, trading off the great powers against each other, so that the damage to Turkey, though extensive, was limited, and it remained a European power. Of him, Bismarck said, of all the intelligence in Europe, 90% is in Abdul Haned, 5% is me, and 5% in everyone else. I wasn't shy, Bismarck. He was able at the time of greatest crisis, when all seemed lost, to generate renewed spirit of resistance to foreign aggression in the Turkish people, and to gain external support for Turkey, even in its weakest state. Fuad Pasha, the Turkish vizier, said to a west ambassador, our state is the strongest state, for you're trying to cause its collapse from the outside and we from the inside, but still it does not collapse. I think the fascinating thing about Turkey. Turkey survived all the threats and the actions taken against it. In 1876-7, the major powers convened a conference in Constantinople, manned by their ambassadors, to try to resolve the situation. Their resultant recommendations were for Bulgaria and Herzegovina to become autonomous provinces within the Turkish Empire, and this was rejected by the Turks. Russia mobilized half a million men and gave an ultimatum to, to Turkey, that it would invade if Turkey did not accede to its demands. Those demands included autonomy for Bosnia-Herzegovina under Austro-Hungarian stewardship, autonomy for a greater Bulgaria, and a fully independent Montenegro, and free passage for Russian armies over Danube. The new Sultan rejected these demands, and Russia declared war. The Russian war aim, according to its army commander-general, Obrychev was the full irrevocable decision of the eastern question the unconditional destruction of Turkish rule in the Balkans. However the Turkish army was able to stall the Russians at the great fort of Plevna in the Balkan mountains and in, in this time European opinion especially that in England became concerned that a full-scale Turkish defeat would mean a fundamental restructuring of the balance of power in Europe. This concern became acute when the Russian armies eventually broke through and raced across the Balkan plains towards Istanbul, halting, severely damaged by battle and disease, just outside the Turkish capital at a small town called Stan Stefano. Now there they agreed, an armistice, and Ignatius, the Russian ambassador to Turkey, and a rabid Slavophile, dictated the terms of a treaty with Turkey. This included full autonomy for a Greater Bulgaria. Greater Bulgaria was a potentially a Russian partner, stretching from the Black Sea to the Aegean, and with, thus with access itself and for its allies to the Mediterranean. Serbia and Montenegro to be enlarged to have a common frontier. Turks to pay a heavy indemnity, 1.4 billion rubles, and Russia to make gains in Anatolia, and have full rights for the passage of Russian ships, the Straits. However, such a fundamental restructuring of the balance of power in Europe was not acceptable to the other great powers. Britain especially saw its interests potentially damaged were Russian naval forces able to pass through the Straits into the Mediterranean. So, Britain especially saw its interests potentially damaged were Russian naval forces able to pass through the Straits into the Mediterranean to threaten Britain's access to the Middle East and particularly to the Suez Canal by now its key route to India, vital for reinforcing its troops there were to be another mutiny. Austria-Hungary saw the joining of Serbia and Montenegro as the base for Greater Serbia, a Slav clan state of Russia, blocking Austria's potential expansion into the Balkans. Russian losses in the campaign through battle and disease had been immense, and they were in no state to resume the conflict. The Turks were mobilizing a new army, and the British fleet had come to protect Istanbul. Unwilling, therefore, to renew the conflict, Russia agreed to come to a Congress of the powers hosted by Bismarck in Berlin. Austro-Hungary proposed Berlin as a Congress site, which only could be described as the one power that had no specific interests in the Balkans. So the major players present were Turkey, Russia, Germany, Austro-Hungary, France, and Britain. There were also a number of minor powers there, Italy, Greece, Serbia, Montenegro. But their presence has little bearing on how our story unfolded at this stage. Now, the fact that the 1880 Congress was called and hosted by Germany in Berlin was a mark of the enormous power shift that had occurred in Europe since the Franco-Prussian War of 1870-71 and the defeat of France. After the Crimean War, France, supported by Britain, had been the top nation in Europe. The settlement treaty negotiated Paris, marked the fact that these two most industrialized modern nations had defeated and humiliated Russia on her own territories in the Crimea, and in the forgotten theater of war, the British fleet had wreaked havoc along the Russian coastline in the Baltic, including setting fire to most of the coastal towns of what is now Finland. Now, the West German states, inclined to this new Anglo-French world, against a historic alliance of Prussia in the east with Russia. Now, in the midst of this internal political struggle, a typical Prussian Junker, Otto von Bismarck, was appointed Chancellor of Prussia. His method of dealing with the political opposition was stark. A contemporary wrote When the debate is over and the vote is about to be taken, a door opens and in strides Prince Bismarck in cuirassa uniform with huge jackboots. And an enormous sword which clatters on the floor. The house is crushed and acts as though these military states had have behind them a regiment of a line, ready to enforce obe- obedience at the point of the bend. I think Mrs. May could do some of this. <laughs> now, Bismarck had a very clear program to reinforce Prussian control of the western-facing German states. The first step was for Prussia to replace Austria as the head of the German Federation. This federation had been created in 1815 to coordinate the economies of the 39 German stateless. Just before his appointment, Bismarck wrote, I shall soon be compelled to undertake the conduct of the Prussian government. As soon as the army shall have been brought to such a stage as to command respect, I shall seize the first best pretext to declare war against Austria, dissolve the German confederation, subdue the minor states, and give national unity to Germany under Prussian leadership. And this is exactly what he did. Through the 1866 war with Austria, after which Prussia formed the North German Federation, which eventually comprised all the German states but excluded Austria, the situation was ratified more formally after the victory of the Prussian military machine over France in 1871, when the German Empire was proclaimed with the King of Prussia, unwillingly proclaimed Emperor. Russia and Britain had stayed neutral, (coughs) Brady saw that this was the greatest political event since the French Revolution at the end of the last century. The centre of Europe had now shifted dramatically eastward, but in this process, a strange hybrid had been created. And this was to be devil German-European politics, and I think still does to this day. A Germany had been created, which included 3 million Poles, but which excluded the 8 million Germans of Austria. Bismarck was forced to execute a foreign policy governed by this. Now, after the war of 1871 with France, Bismarck believed that the greatest threat to the new Germany would come from revanchism, the desire of the French to revenge their defeat and to regain the lost provinces of Alsace and Lorraine. His aim, therefore, was to ensure that France remained isolated in Europe with no allies and was thus unable to launch a war against Germany. He said the idea that France might be able to form such a coalition gave him nightmares. What was of particular concern was the possibility that the two defeated nations, France and Austria, might with or without Russia, unite in seeking their revenge on Germany. With the position of England, the historic guarantor of the balance power in Europe, uncertain. German policy therefore, should be to ally itself as closely as possible with Austria and alliance with France was clearly seen as impossible while maintaining the historical Prussian alliance with Russia. Now, in his 1877 Kissinger Diktat, Bismarck set out for his son Herbert what the outlines of the Germans' future policy, foreign policy should be, seeking a political situation in which all the powers except France need us and are deterred of a coalition against us by their relations to each other as far as possible. To prevent alliances against Germany, Germany should use the conflicts of interest between the other European powers on the periphery or outside Europe. A supporting or at least neutral position of Germany should be necessary for all this. Now the Middle East crises of 1875 to 8 revealed the flaws in this approach. Basically, it was impossible for Germany, now the leading power in Europe, to play the role of honest broker, a role that Bismarck repeatedly claimed during the Berlin Congress but one which the settlement there revealed to be false. After the 1866 defeat by Prussia and her exclusion from the new Germany, Austro-Hungary, which until then had been primarily interested in being the leading power amongst the German states, faced the question as to what should be its future strategic direction. Now, Firstly, it underwent a total restructuring and we heard about that restructuring in one of our last uh, recent lectures with Austria and Hungary each taking on responsibility for its own internal affairs, with Franz Joseph as head of state for each country. Only in foreign and military matters was there a common structure under the emperor's control. Now the loss of Trieste, and thus access to the Adriatic and the Mediterranean, to the Italians supported by the French, at the same time as the Prussian defeat was a bitter blow. We tend to forget that we all talk about Austria being defeated by Germany in 1866, uh, what went on at the back was that Italy moved on Trieste and was supported by France. Um, and so Austria faced, faced a double rally. It split its armies, and that meant that Prussia had a much easier job than it would have done had Austria been able to combine and work with one single army. Uh, the emperor called Gilda to the imperial foreign secretary in 1867, now, Andrasi had been the premier of Hungary and Franz Joseph had come to value him highly for his work in delivering the structure of the dual monarchy, post 1866. And in 1870, it was Andrasi who was responsible for the Austro-Hungarian neutrality in the Franco-Prussian War, in spite of there being voices in the army clamouring for an alliance with France to reverse the defeat of 1866. Now, key to Andrássy's thinking was the position of Austro-Hungary in the Balkans, and specifically the position of Bosnia-Herzegovina, situated between Austrian and Hungarian lands, with access to the Adriatic, which had been lost by the cession of Trieste. The gaining control over these two provinces from Turkey became the major objective of Austro-Hungarian foreign policy. The further purpose was to counter Russian expansionist aims in the Balkans by establishing a prior claim to them should there be a conflict between Russia and Turkey. Now the additional concern to Austro Hungary and the area which was likely to create direct conflict with Russia was control over the Lower Danube, the dual monarchy's trade outlet to the Black Sea, and thus to the Mediterranean and the wider world. There was the fear that Russia, or Russia influenced states such as Romania, and particularly a Greater Bulgaria, could strangle such trade at times of tension. What was of most concern to the Hungarians in the Austro-Hungarian Empire was that with a possible collapse of Turkey in Europe, there would be conflagration amongst the Slav states with nationalist movements destabilizing not only the Turks but also Austria-Hungary. Now, in 1875, Andrasi reported to the Crown Council, Turkey possesses a utility, almost providential for Austria-Hungary, for Turkey maintains a status quo of the small Balkan states, and impedes their nationalist aspirations. If it were not for Turkey, all these aspirations would fall down upon our heads. If Bosnia-Herzegovina should go to Serbia or Montenegro, or if a new state should be formed there which we cannot prevent, then we should be ruined and should ourselves assume the role of the sick man of Europe. Now that's a hugely precipitate analysis of why Turkey Uh, was so vital to the preservation of the Austro-Hungarian empire. In 1877, Andrasi concluded the Reichstag Convention, later confirmed as the Budapest Convention with Russia, whereby Austro-Hungary would give Russia a free hand in dealing with Turkey, in return for Russia allowing Austro-Hungarian predominance in Bosnia-Herzegovina. Prior to the Berlin Conference in 1878, Austria-Hungary agreed to support British amb- ambitions in return for British support the Bosnia-Herzegovina. You can begin to see the horse trading begins to sm- yeah. move as things move on. Britain's involvement in the 1876 Eastern crisis came at a particularly tense moment in its internal political life. Gladstone, who I've already quoted on the Bulgarian massacres, was no longer at this stage the leader of the liberal Whig group. They had been beaten by the Tories led by Benson and Disraeli in the 1874 election. Disraeli had, in the course of a highly eventful political career, overcome enormous racial prejudice and personal antagonism, and through sheer hard work that he made appear effortless, come to dominate Parliament, so that he had to, as he put it, arrived at the top of the greasy pole of politics. Of him, his biographer, Robert Blake, wrote, Disraeli was a great parliamentarian, and a superb actor, two characters often that are always conjoined. Until ill health undermined his concentration and energy, his skill was universally admired and also his courage, the quality for which, after his death, Gladstone sincerely praised him in his valedictory address. He needed all the courage at his command. For long years he stood alone, trying to answer most of the great orators of the day ranged against him on the opposite benches. His tongue-tied colleagues in the early days of his leadership could give him little support, save their goodwill, and their money, actually, as well. He never faltered, never surrendered, never failed in resource, eloquence and ingenuity. In an age of amateurs, he was a professional politician, always in his place, always alert. The House of Commons was his life, and he loved it. In the end, it came to respect and even to love him. Gladstone, however, after the election, was still a member of parliament, and eventually found it impossible to re- remain politically quiescent. Disraeli wrote of one of his parliamentary interventions. Mr. Gladstone not only appeared, but rushed into the debate. The new members trembled like small birds when a hawk is in the air. Since the repeal of the Corn laws and the subsequent splitting of the Conservative Party, Disraeli and Gladstone have been political opponents. Oh, the clash over Turkey's role in the Bulgarian massacres, as Disraeli's biographer Robert Blake said, injected a bitterness into English politics that had not been seen since the Law debates. Gladstone's biographer, Roy Jenkins said of him, with their utterly conflicting styles, Gladstone's moral indignation and Disraeli's sardonic cynicism, they each infuriated each other and increased the mutual hostility. I've already quoted Gladstone at great length, on the Bulgarian massacres, Disraeli's comments on Gladstone's intervention were more personal and bitter. And I quote, Vindictive and ill-written, that of course. Indeed, in that respect, of all the Bulgarian horrors, perhaps the greatest. Posterity will do justice to that unprincipled maniac, Gladstone. Extraordinary mixture of envy, vindictiveness, hypocrisy and superstition, And with one commanding characteristic, whether Prime Minister or Leader of the Opposition, whether preaching, praying, speechifying or scribbling, never a gentleman. We miss that language, our president. At the heart of this conflict, there was a profound difference of approach to the Britain that was moving out of the secure, prosperous, yet unacceptation third quarter of the 19th century. Which Peel had laid the foundations, aided by Gladstone, hindered by Disraeli. Yet it was the latter's government, in a program of social legislation, factory acts, school acts, that began to address the social problems that industrialization had created for Britain. Gladstone's campaign on the Bulgarian masculine, <coughs> for which 200,000 copies were eventually sold, was complemented by a whirlwind extra parliamentary campaign. There were 500 plus meetings up and down the country, mostly organized by the Eastern Christian Association, which typically passed resolutions abhorring the atrocities and condemning the government and Israeli for their moral detachment. This created an atmosphere, including splits in the government at the highest level, which made it impossible to propose supporting Turkey against Russian aggression. The Foreign Secretary, Darby, and his wife, who were relaying details of the government's deliberations to the Russian ambassador, Shuvalov. It was the stoutness of Turkish defense at clevered, and then the Russian breakthrough towards Istanbul, that fundamentally changed opinion in Britain. And this is where I'm going to need your help. I want you to sing this along with me, if you will, please. One, two, three. We don't want to fight, but by jingo we, we do. We got the ships, we got the men, we got the money too. <coughs> We fought the bear before, and while we're Britain's true, the Russians shall not have Constantinople. Right now, the crisis gave Disraeli his first chance of peer to engage in foreign affairs. In 1875, he said to Lady Blanford, "I really believe that the Eastern question, which has haunted Europe for centuries, and which I thought Crimean War." had adjourned for half an hour, will fall to my lot to encounter. Did I say settle? Actually, he had little experience with or knowledge of foreign countries. His only direct contacts had been when he traveled, ironically, through the countries of the Eastern Mediterranean in the 1830s, collecting a social disease on the way. The only foreign language that he spoke was French, and that very poorly. He was, in fact, out of touch with the realities of the European world, with the decline of French influence post the defeat of 1871 and the domination of Europe by the Drei, Drei Kaiserbund, the alliance of the emperors of German, Austria, and France. Disraeli, on behalf of Britain, had one overriding objective when considering the eastern question that was to protect the Suez Canal, Britain's lifeline to India from any threat of Russian attack. This was to be achieved by the maintenance of Turkey as a European power able to block Russian access to the Mediterranean and to hamper its eastern ambitions of a thrust through Persia towards Afghanistan and the passes into India. See Kipling's Kim and the stories of the Great Game. Therefore, by resisting the breakup of Turkey and Europe, he was defending the security of the Suez Canal, where Britain's influence and interests had been strengthened by the purchase of the Khedive's 44% shareholding in the canal in 1875-6. Now, the one great European power I have not mentioned, of course, is France. Though defeated by Germany in 1871, she was still of such significance on the European sea that she had to be included in any settlement that affected the relationships of the other great European powers. As Bismarck claimed for Germany, France had no vital interest in settling the problems of the sick man of Europe. Did have an interest in seeing how such a settlement played out and how it left the relationships between the other great powers. The historian J.P. P. Taylor wrote, "France did nothing between 1875 and 1878 and did it very well) <laughs> The views expressed by the speaker are not necessarily the same as those held by the team at the Mr T Podcast Studio. This podcast is produced by the Mr T Podcast Studio in association with the Farnham U3A Group.